Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your sickly co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here this week with Pete Wall. Pete, you're better than me, I'm going to guess. How are you? Yeah, yeah. just to make clear, one of your sickly co-hosts doesn't mean we're both sickly. <laughs> no, that's I'm very in true, fantastic yes. health, yeah. never better. Except that I was telling Paul, uh, just before we started recording that, I've actually got some kind of mystery back pain, which is definitely nothing to do with the ageing process. It's uh, <laughs> pro- probably just all elite athletes go through this kind of, you know, niggling pain every now and again. So I'm going to put it down to, to sporting achievement, if anything. Um, Paul, apart from being a little bit, uh, well, to say the least, a little bit under the weather this week, uh, battling through to do the episode, how are you doing and how has the last week been for you? Aside from that, the last week has been good. Uh, Joe, no, after the last show, Pete, I immediately watched Bug on your recommendation. So I enjoyed that. So thank you very much for that. It was great. Um, And I kind of, for me, Michael Shannon kind of appeared out of nowhere and I didn't know really where he'd come from. Mm. I believe Bug is possibly the film that broke him doing some research. I mean, he'd been been in a few things before but my lord is he terrifying in this um so yeah, yeah. No, I, had a, I had a great time with bug so thank you for that so yeah if you haven't caught up with pete's recommendation yet i strongly recommend you do so because it's great and that's a that's a really good segue into today's episode actually because of course we are recording on the on the eve of um just about halloween um is it today is it tomorrow Tomorrow, 31st. Tomorrow, that is literally on the eve of Halloween, yeah. right? I lose track. Uh, nothing to do with ageing again. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> on the eve of Halloween, recording the episode. So what we thought is we want to do something to acknowledge the fact that it is Halloween. So the main focus for the show, at least as we get into the second half, is going to be our top five for this week, which is top five scariest scenes of all times. According to Paul and I, obviously other opinions are available, but we're going to do our best to uh, terrify you with our picks and and sort of jog your memory to some of the most harrowing times in your life. So you're welcome. But before that, we're going to also focus on this week's big release, which is, of course, Terminator Dark Fate. We'll have a full feature review. We also have the normal sections of the show, like coming attractions to preview films coming up and before that, popcorn movies. But before all of that, Paul, we're going to talk about film news, and you've brought to the table some more film news for this week, I think. I have indeed, yes. So this is the news, uh, more Star Wars news for me, because everyone knows I love Star Wars, and there's a lot of Star Wars news in the news at the moment. So, uh, yeah, this is um, the information that um, David David Weiss and DB, DB oh, whoever, whatever their names are, let's find out again. Let's, let's remember their Boys. names. They're both called, I think they're both called David. David Benioff and DB Weiss, um, infamous now for ruining Game of Thrones season eight, um, have now left their previously announced Star Wars trilogy that was due to release in 2022 um, to focus on work for Netflix. Now, they are claiming that they're too busy simply to focus on Star Wars. But Pete, you have another theory on this. Yeah, well, it would seem to me that in this day and age, having any connection with Netflix is going to uh, cancel out any possible connection you could have or hope to have with the Disney Corporation, you know? Um it seems tough to imagine that these guys would be allowed the leeway to work on a Star Wars property whilst also flirting with the uh, the people over at Netflix, batting their eyelashes at Netflix. So, yeah, I mean, you can buy that, right? Given that Net- uh, Disney Plus service is about to launch in the UK. Yeah, not- I can. No, I can. I can completely buy that, to be honest. As you said, it seems bizarre. They si- apparently they signed their Netflix deal before they signed the, the Star Wars deal. Um, but yeah, it doesn't seem to me like this is, yeah, that they're telling the entire truth with that. And I would say your, your theory is you may well be on the money, Pete, to be honest. Um, 
from my perspective, you know, I'm a big Star Wars fan. There is a rumor that this Star Wars, this Star Wars trilogy, was supposed to be set sort of thousands of years in the old Republic time, which does it. The, the concept of that excites me. It'll be something different to do with Star Wars. Um, that being said, with the job, in my opinion, of what they did when they were when they ran out of source material for Game of Thrones, um, it wasn't very good. It didn't end well for me. So I think a lot of people will probably be more relieved than worried about this news. To be perfectly honest, so and and Paul, as the resident uh, Star Wars correspondent, do you think? That- that this means that that there won't be another Star Wars trilogy, or is it simply a matter of handing that responsibility to somebody this, else? It, it it's difficult to tell how far along this project had come. I mean, they they had slated these down as a 2022 release, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I don't think we've seen the last of Star Wars in the slightest. Ryan Johnson is supposed to be working on another trilogy. God forbid. Um, this was the one that excited me the most. If it does have that old setting, because. There's a series of games set, the Old Republic games that are set 3,000 years before Star Wars, and they're some of the best Star Wars games made, and certainly have some of the best sort of narrative storytelling uh, made by Bioware, the guys that did Mass Effect, um, certainly have some of the best storytelling in any of the Star Wars games. So that that does excite me. I hope if that is the project, it does carry on in some way. Um, I don't think it's the last we've seen of this trilogy, though. Yeah, and isn't it right that you mentioned it on the show a month or so ago, probably, that Mandalorian, the TV series, is, is yeah. launching around now, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. It's going to be early 2020 in the UK, I think, due to okay. Sky's Sky have got all the license, lots of licensing agreements with Disney over here. So my understanding is that's what's delayed the release of Disney Plus over here, which, uh, you know, something else to blame Sky for, which is always nice. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Yeah. Uh, so this actually kind of ties into a second piece of news for this week, right, which is related not so much to Disney, but more in the direction of Netflix. It seems to be a, an obsession on this show, and we promise you that it isn't, but it just happens that a lot of stories are happening around the world of Netflix as it sort of grows and, and increasingly takes more space in the in the film landscape. But yes, this section, I suppose, shouldn't take so much space because we could speed it up to one and a half times, couldn't we, Paul? Um, what is the story with speeding up Netflix, so to speak? Uh, so this is the news today that um, Netflix are testing variable, variable speed playback, um, which has upset uh, pretty much every content creator that's got anything on Netflix, I would imagine, to be perfectly honest. So this is the option for Netflix, I would argue, probably would argue that uh, there's people with very busy people, so you can watch things in either 0. 0.5, 0. 0.75, normal speed, 1.25 speed, or 1.5 speed. So um, you can watch things slower, not sure why you'd want to do that, um, but you can watch things faster so basically film that is three hours long i think it gets something so i read somewhere that it gets the irishman down to a sub three hour running time for example now understandably a lot of content creators have gone hold hold the phone um this kind of, this is not how these films are made surely this this ruins the pacing of things um what i would say netflix is you owe myself and my university friend who may well be listening sam griffin a big pot of money because we used to do this when we got in from the pub at three in the morning we used to press 1.5 speed on a blu-ray player we were very very drunk and i think we've watched both rocky 4 and commando back to back at 1.5 speed um so netflix if you do roll ahead with this you owe us some money pete what do you think of this idea yeah. good bad indifferent well, to tag on that point, it, yeah. <laughs> it might be somewhat revealing that the thinking of the Netflix corporation and a couple of drunken university students is fairly, <laughs> you know, pretty much yeah. in line. Because it seems to me like, yeah, the very fact that Netflix see all of their operations as essentially, tech, you know, t- the workings of a technology company rather than any 
custodian necessarily of great filmmaking um, is important to this story because I think that like I've, I've seen a lot of people I've read a lot of comments about this on Twitter people saying you know what's the issue if you don't want it don't use it it's just there we've been able to do it for ages with things like you know VLC and other other mm. sort of desktop players that you use for video content but um, it, there is something a bit a bit off about this, I think. Um, however, I would say that in, in terms of the hierarchy of gripes that I have with Netflix, this is like quite far down. Um, things like the thumbs up, thumbs down thing, way more annoying to me than the fact that this will be available. And, you know, I could imagine watching a film that I like. Uh, I don't know, David Lynch might come up later, Paul. Uh, David Lynch films that are slowed down to sort of half speed. Although I would imagine um, David Lynch would be the kind of director who is going to embargo this feature because I've heard rumours that there could be the possibility for um, particular creatives, directors, filmmakers and so on or studios to actually um, request the withdrawal of this feature on their work. Whether that will come to fruition, I I don't know. I mean, from my perspective, I guess I can see the argument if you don't like it, don't use it. I can see why content providers would be be upset with it. But then, uh, yeah, it's a a difficult one, really. if If it's not forcing anything on me then I can't really see any massive need to be upset by it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's fair comment, I think. And ultimately, I mean, the thing is, we can, you know, wring our hands with the fact that Netflix is a technology company and, and doesn't care about great movie making. But at the same time, that is literally what they are. So it, it can't come as like any giant surprise when they make decisions like this, because they're just looking for ways to be innovative with the technology they have, which is for streaming video content. They don't really care i don't think about i mean what... if uh, what, I, what i would say is if you wanted to come at me and argue about the qualities of the film if you've watched it at 1.5 speed i will dismiss you out of hand however um more more power to the you know more power to you if that's what you want to do but you can't you see where i'm coming from pete like is for me no it's not the way to watch films but does it cause me any damage no as long as that watch films at normal speed options there but don't come at me trying to critique a film that you've watched at 1.5 speed because i'll have none of it <laughs> it's like, yeah it, it's yeah. absolutely true it's like when yeah, when you see people give a, a sort of strong opinion about something and then they say, I couldn't even get to the end of it. They yeah. say, well, don't, well, just don't comment then. Just don't comment. And that's yeah. not going to be a fear for us when it comes to people listening to this show because you're going to stay around to the bitter end, uh, the scary, scary end of this episode. <laughs> but before we get to the end, we've got another section coming up and we always call it Popcorn Movies. It's the section of the show where Paul and I review films that we've seen over the last seven days and exchange our opinions on said films. It's coming up right after this. So welcome again to Popcorn Movies. As Pete mentioned before, this is any films we've seen over the past seven days or so, any age, doesn't really matter. Um, I've gone for a bit of a horror theme this week with my two choices because Halloween is tomorrow as we're recording on All Hallows Eve Eve, as was alluded to before. Um, The first of which I've got is something that I picked up on Movie, um, and I haven't logged in for a while actually, and every time I log in I sit there and go, why don't I spend more time on Movie and less time on Netflix? Every single time I log in. Uh, And I discovered uh, this film which is a vampire theme film called The Transfiguration from 2016. It is directed by Michael Jay. Um, and I knew v- literally nothing about this film before I watched it. It kept completely under my radar, which is a surprise, really, because um, the poster is very, very cool. Uh, it's on sitting on our Instagram feed at the moment, if anyone's interested in that. And yeah, it's an indie vampire film, I would say, very much in the vein. And it definitely owes a debt of gratitude to uh, let the right one in. Um, but that's there's worse films to be inspired by than let the right one in in my in my humble opinion um 
basically focuses around a troubled teen milo who is fascinated with vampire law and happens to be a vampire um and falls in love kind of falls in love and develops a relationship with a with a teenage girl who is kind of a who is an outsider certainly and i would say definitely an outsider almost as much as he is to be fair played here by chloe levine um we've got eric ruffin in the lead role as milo um and both the first thing that jumps out at me is both these both these young actors are you aware of either of these actors? not by the, name no i mean if i did okay. a deep dive into um, imdb i could probably yeah i mean I, both the actors here um especially eric ruffin as, as milo are just fantastic and i think it's i think they are certainly definitely going to be stars stars to watch in the future what he brings to this kind of like he's basically essentially he said he's a vampire and he you see him kill people and he's aware that he has to do certain things and there's certain rules that ha- vampires have to abide by but you kind of get the begrudging impression that he's not overly happy with this situation and he doesn't particularly enjoy being a vampire which is quite a nice touch but all this is done in the backdrop of this kind of social degraded houses sort of us new york sort of housing block um and there and and that kind of that set to that kind of backdrop so there's there's a lot of social there's a lot of social drama attached to this as well um which i think makes it stand out is and stand out from let the right one in it does certain things differently um it is perhaps a little bit too understated for its own good at times and i would say even though it runs to sort of an hour and 37 minutes i had a few issues with pacing here and there but otherwise i think it's a cracking it's a cracking sort of understated indie horror um that if you haven't seen you should definitely seek out if not for any other reason than the the two superb central performances so um yeah i would say it comes comes recommended for sure that's the transfiguration uh, by michael o'shea and that's streaming on mubi at the moment yeah, and I think so many people around Halloween get the same sort of uh, horror movie recommendations cycled sort of year on year on year. So I think it's good to throw in some original stuff that maybe fewer people have seen as a suggestion. For... Fair, that's exactly that's exactly what mo- there's a little spill on movie saying they were doing exactly the same thing. So so yeah, so absolutely from from movie to myself and from myself to the audience at home. If you have movie, check out the Transfiguration. Nice. Um, so what I've done this week, Paul, is I, I've kind of done two and a half let's say uh popcorn <laughs> reviews or prepared two and a half popcorn reviews and the reason for that is because i think two of my films i'm going to talk about now at the same time because they have an awful lot in common albeit right. um taking slightly different approaches or very different approaches actually to the same sort of subject matter so the two films in question begin with a film called tell me who i am which is a uh, ostensibly a netflix documentary production available streaming now on that platform um and it is from a director called ed perkins now ed perkins is this guy um that when i sort of did a bit of research into him i realized we reviewed one of his pieces of work when he was just starting out and we were just starting out with strangers which was do you remember that documentary called comic book heroes or comic store heroes, perhaps it was about uh, the, all the people who worked at a particular comic book store. It lasted a oh, that was an hour or so. That was a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I remember it well. Yeah, yeah. And they sent us a screener from the US and everything. That's right. Yeah. So same yeah. director. Weird callback to times gone by. This one. Yeah. Uh, tell me who I am. Very much more sort of um, serious material because what this documentary does is uh, the director Ed Perkins gets together um, two brothers who are called uh, Alex and Marcus Lewis 
Um, at least he gets together in terms of like flitting between talking head interviews with each of them um, in sort of very sparse, uh, stark surroundings where they've got sort of a glass of water, or a cup of coffee, and they're telling their story. But the hook here is that one of these brothers suffered a traumatic brain injury when he was, I think, 18 years old in a motorbike accident, which left him with no memory whatsoever of his childhood. And then his twin brother was effectively responsible for painting in the gaps or everything that existed in the void of where his childhood used to be. And what his brother did is he made it seem as though childhood had basically been a lovely time. Uh, um, a prosperous time, a happy time, and a time spent on family holidays and really drinking in these great experiences of early life. What transpired over the coming years was the fact that that wasn't quite the case. And what had happened in childhood to both of the boys was more horrific than the brother responsible for, you know, um, doling out that information was responsible, uh, was, excuse me, was prepared to take on. So he effectively lied to his brother to save his brother from the truth of how dark things were. I don't want to say too much more about their story because I think this is uh, superior uh, production when it comes to Netflix documentary stuff. And I think that people who are fans of, of this kind of serious material will uh, want to see it for themselves and, and kind of form their own opinions. And it just sort of brings me on to my second film, although I think it's impossible for me to talk about my second film without giving a bit of a hint as, as to what territory we're in with the first film and, okay. and both of them. The second film is a film called The Tale from 2018. Um, this one from former documentary filmmaker Jennifer Fox making her first theatrical feature. And it stars uh, an actress that I love to talk about on this show, Laura Dern. Um, the thing with the tale is that Jennifer Fox is telling the story effectively of her own childhood that she became aware of during um, a period in her life where she was making a documentary about a, uh, childhood abuse. She was making this documentary and she was conducting interviews with different subjects and she started to reassess her own experiences as a child and the fact that he, she spent an awful lot of her time, particularly in the summers, with a uh, horse riding coach and a, who was a female and a male running coach who in this movie in Flashback is played by Jason Ritter um, alongside Elizabeth Debicki. And so the film attempts to dramatise the adult character of Jennifer Fox played by Laura Dern looking back on the memories that she had of childhood do you remember that film called American Animals from uh, a year yes. or two oh, yeah it was kind of done in docu in, docu flashback docudrama style yeah it was it was and the reason it's relevant here is because in that film and in this film what happens is the protagonists are telling the story of what happened in the past and they realize that their memory of the past is unreliable and this starts to change the actual sequences taking place in those flashbacks and in those reconstructions of what happened so what jennifer uh, fox is concerned with here is showing the way in which the stories we tell us uh, the stories we tell ourselves sort of shape our own memories 
Just like, I guess, tying back into uh, Tell Me Who I Am, where we can create a past from ourselves from photographs, you know, from a story told mm. by somebody else, from the way we choose to remember a story rather than the way that it actually was. Uh, the Tale is, is a really interesting piece of work, I think, from that point of view. Laura Dern, you couldn't have someone better in this role, I think, as the adult um, part of the, the story. And then the young girl playing younger Jennifer Fox also does a fantastic job. It is rough. It is tough viewing. Um, there were decisions that had to be made in production to protect the younger members of the cast. Um, and you'll understand why when you see it. So neither of these things, Tell Me Who I Am or The Tale, are you know light viewing or, or necessarily have too much directly in common with the, the Halloween theme of today's episode, other than being you know, <coughs> horrifying in their own sort of deep and, and powerful way. But I would recommend both of them. Um, and I'm glad I, I checked both of them out. So um, yeah, that's Tell Me Who I Am and The nice. Tale. Paul, what have you got second? Uh, Scream. I revisited Scream, which is always a pleasure because it's one of the film series that I ended up watching a lot. Twice university's come out now. I always used to watch the Scream series almost on repeat at university and probably haven't seen it much since then. So revisited the original uh, Wes Craven. I would just about classic, I would say, in, so, in some regards. Um, it stands up pretty well, actually, in fairness. Um, anyone not familiar with Scream, it tells the story of a high school girl played by Nev Campbell, um, who is stalked by uh, Ghostface, who is a killer in the sort of traditional kind of slasher mold, um, as you would expect from kind of Wes Craven or, or a slasher film. But for anyone who's not aware of Scream, and there may be people out there who haven't seen it, because it is now nearly 25 years old, which is terrifying, genuinely terrifying. I think it's 23 years old this year. Um, yeah, kind of a lot of people were bored of slasher films, and rightfully so, in the mid-90s, and Scream came along, and Wes Craven came along, and kind of of mashed up the genre, reinvented it, um, in kind of basically with this incredibly sharply put together genre deconstruction. Um, it plays on all of the stereotypes. It, it brings your attention to all of the cliches in horror films, then promptly uses all of them, and then brings your attention back to them, and then uses all of them again. Um, at times, it's very, very funny. It certainly is very, very clever. Um, the constant references to other films probably hasn't aged quite as well as you'd think it may have done um, in places, having rewatched this, but it still remains, as I said, very, very sharply written and very, very clever um, and still highly enjoyable um, to this day. Um, and I'm looking forward to pouring back through Scream 2, 3 and 4 because I've always had a soft spot for those as well. And yeah, just Wes Craven as well. May he rest in peace. I always forget that he's not with us anymore. But yes, sadly, he is not with us anymore. And I'll have to see Nightmare on Elm Street in the cinema later if I don't go straight back to bed. So it's a good, good, a good Halloween dose of Wes Craven there for me. So yeah, Scream, still highly recommended. Pete, any thoughts on Scream? I guess you've seen it. Um, um uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, it's. I, I've seen it a few times, but I, sh I kind of feel like it's of the season, like you have to go back yeah. to it and watch it again, at least the first one. And, and to be honest, Paul, like you, I, I've got a bit of love for the sequels as well. Fun. I think that they. they yeah, well, when we say, you know, oftentimes people say that, oh, they have fun with it. And sometimes that can be like a good thing. And sometimes it just means they're sort of goofing off and didn't care yeah. about the results. I think that there's there's enough of a good time there in like a genuine sense in, in the sequels to uh, to make it worth the time and the, the revisit. And I, funnily enough, I rewatched not the entirety of, but chunks of um, the, the Last House on the Left this week as sort of yeah. lead up to doing our top five. And um, yeah, and that was, you know, as upsetting yeah. as ever, to be honest. But like credit to the fact that 
but Wes Craven at that time was 26 or something like that when he made that movie and, and by his own admission just a very sort of angry fairly directionless person who wanted to make a point and didn't quite know how to make it and, and it's amazing to see that something like Scream that is pretty polished and savvy and knowing and you know all those things that you've you've touched on there is made by the same man who also made this sort of yeah. visceral <laughs> bloody ugly thing in the in the in the case of Last House on the Left so yeah go, go watch Wes Craven films you guys that's what yep. I would add agreed to that. agreed what have you got next Pete um lastly for me on yeah, lastly for me on Popcorn this week, I have got around to uh, one that we previewed a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, which is The Dead Centre, this one with Mr. Shane Carruth, not in the director's chair, which is uh, deeply upsetting, but uh, the lead in the uh, film playing here a psychiatrist who goes way beyond the call of duty in the things that he does within the psychiatric ward in which he works. The- the movie itself focuses on a particular patient who Carruth's character wants to be admitted to the unit. So, like I say, he sort of dodges red tape in ways that are definitely, definitely going to get him fired in order to get this guy what he believes to be the care that he needs on the unit. The guy's an amnesiac and can't recall who he is, who his family background or where his family background um, is located, um, anything about himself, at least initially. But it seems like this guy has something within him that can come out and have horrible, horrible consequences for the people that come into contact with him. The Dead Center has quite a lot for me in common with sort of late 90s uh, Japanese horror movies and in like a very good way. Um, if you think of that era of stuff, there's a lot here that is um, a result probably of a limited budget, but also in the best kind of way you know when you see filmmakers making stylistic choices that might be a product of not having a load of money but actually play to the benefit of the movie because it all feels quite um concise and compact and um considered in a way that you might not get from something that was a little bit uh, of a bigger sort of budget movie. I should say that the movie's director is Billy Sinezi, he's a guy I don't know a great deal about. And um, yeah, it, it's got the kind of um, unsettling, something's wrong, but we don't quite know what feel of those movies until the proverbial hit shit hits the fan. And then um, I, I just think it's kind of carried off with some aplomb. So Yes, I could pick holes in the dead centre, but I don't really want to. Uh, Shane Carruth's good in it. Um, if you like Shane Carruth's stuff, there's a sort of Caruthian uh, tinge to this production that I think fans of the guy will appreciate. And um, yeah, yeah, it's a recommendation for me, the dead centre. And I wanted to well, include good, something on this. that's good, because I don't, think, well, I don't think we were ever on. We I'm not sure what our anticipation high levels were that high for that. So I'm intrigued now. I'll check it out. It's good. Yeah, yeah, it's it's decent value for the what hour and a half that it hangs around. So yeah, if you like that sort of stuff, get nice. on it. Um, that is then the end of our popcorn movie section, which means that we've still got coming up our feature review for today, which is a Terminator Dark Fate. But as always, before we get to the feature, we're going to preview some films coming out over the weekend ahead in our section called Coming Attractions, which is right after this. So 
so yeah coming attractions um pete let's get to it what have we got what have we got coming up this week so uh first out the gate this week we have dr sleep this one is effectively the sequel to the shining um in so much as it was written by stephen king in response to apparently a question that was uh given to him asked to him at a book signing back in uh, 1998 when somebody said what happened to danny after the events of The Shining. And so um, here we have Mike Flanagan taking on directorial duties. Mike Flanagan of things like, um, what now, Oculus and Before I Wake and on and on, um, a number of films that we've reviewed fairly fairly favourably, I think is fair to say. On this, yeah, Oculus was decent from memory, so yeah. On this show, um, we've got in the cast Rebecca Ferguson, Ewan McGregor and Jacob Tremblay, who was also in Before I Wake with Mike Flanagan, so there's like an existing relationship there for sure. Uh, years following the events of The Shining and now adult Danny Torrance meets a young girl with similar powers as his and tries to protect her from a cult known as the True Knot who prey on children with powers to remain immortal. Um, yes, I this took me a bit by surprise, Paul, in the sense that I wasn't familiar with Doctor Sleep as a, as a property and then I suddenly realised that the trailer to this movie kept referencing The Shining and I couldn't quite understand why. <laughs> and I now get it. Um, are you right. anticipating hotly this release? Is anything putting you off? Where are you at with this? I mean, uh, yeah, I, th- I think... I haven't read the book, actually, I have to say. I, th- I think the book's supposed to be all right, I, from my understanding. I was aware that it existed. Um, I think, ultimately, they've tied it so close to The Shining, uh, it's the expectation is that it's not going to be as good as The Shining. So we're going to go into that. You're going to go into this film with that expectation. Based on that, I don't know. I mean, I quite like Mike Flanagan said his work with Oculus. I thought Oculus was a pretty creepy and effective horror film. Um, Ewan McGregor on a good day delivers a decent performance. And I was pleasantly surprised by the trailer for this, to be honest. So I think this might be all right. In all honesty, I think this might turn out to be half decent. It said it won't be as good as The Shining. There's there's almost no chance it can be. I might be mistaken, but I I've got I'm quietly confident for this one. I haven't seen any buzz. I haven't I've avoided all reviews thus far. Um, so you might you might burst my bubble there but I'm quite confident this will be half decent to be honest yeah I mean it's interesting to note as well that I think famously Stephen King's not a massive fan of the Kubrick no. um, adaptation of, of The Shining and so had to be persuaded that this film was going to use that film as its sort of basis in terms of sequeling that film as opposed to the the property yeah. itself as a, as a novel but um, yeah no, interesting and like I said and like we've both said I think I think Mike Flanagan has got chops as a horror director so fingers crossed basically fingers crossed something good um something that i don't need to cross my fingers about because i've already seen uh is next but it's coming out generally this friday or over the weekend is uh, sorry we missed you the latest from ken loach written by longtime collaborator paul laverty who also wrote for example i daniel blake which did so well critically at least uh, a couple of years back this one stars chris hitchin and debbie honeywood as a husband and wife who are very much the exemplar of the modern work culture crisis in the uk in the sense that chris hitchin's character uh, takes on a new role where he is told that he is going to be a sort of entrepreneur self-employed completely free from the man when what that actually means is he is a slave to a digital scanning machine as he delivers right, parcels yeah. all across his area um to to very, very strict timings uh, with all kinds of restrictions around what he can and can't do and how much it will cost him if he dares to make any kind of an error. His wife at the same time is working in the health sector and she faces her own set of 
troubles when it comes to red tape, limitations, low pay and restrictions on her ability to have basically a functional family life. Uh, and then there's a knock on effect. They have a teenage son and we'll get more into it next week. Paul, how much are you anticipating this? You were a fan, I think, of Daniel Blake, right? I, Daniel Blake. Yeah, I liked I Daniel Blake. I said for parts of it, and I find this with a lot of political films, parts of I Daniel Blake I found a touch on the heavy handed side, but I still was a fan of I Daniel Blake. I think it was it was overall it was a very, very good film. Um so yeah, I mean it's a Ken Loach film. Like, so I'm going to see this. I'll always anticipate a Ken Loach film. I don't think he's made many missteps, to be honest. I mean, I'm I'm intrigued because you said you've got you've got feelings about this, so I'm excited to talk about this with you. And again, I'm I'm intrigued because I again because of certain feelings I had with Idonia Blake, I found it to be a little bit pantomime in places. I may be wrong, but that's that's how I felt about it. So shoot me for that. Um, and maybe this will go the same way. I don't know. But that being said, it's you know it's a guarantee. I will guarantee be in the cinema for it this weekend. So yeah, it's a new Ken Loach film. Reason to be excited. One that I have a suspicion you won't be in the cinema for this weekend Paul is After the Wedding uh, this one is the <laughs> latest from Bart Freundlich who is the real life husband of Julianne Moore the film stars Julianne Moore alongside Michelle Williams and Billy Crudup so you'd think like wow starry cast I'm in um, it tells the story yeah. of a manager of an orphanage in Kolkata Calcutta uh, who travels to New York <laughs> to meet a benefactor this to me screams um, earnest filmmaking and in not in, not in a good way and, and maybe that's horribly unfair on Bart Freundlich and his previous output. Maybe it's unfair on the cast and people who've gathered together to make this piece of work. I'm not anticipating great things from after the wedding. And I think we're sitting at about a 51 meta score at the moment. Um, moving on hastily from that one, we've also got limited release of um, Britney Runs a Marathon. This one is Gillian Bell as a woman who decides to try to turn her life around by training for the New York Marathon. Um, obviously, if people are aware of Gillian uh, Bell from uh, Workaholics, for example, will know that she it's not... I think overtly offensive to say she's not the most athletic looking person in the world. Um, and so you can imagine where the laughs are going to be uh, found in this one, hopefully in more frequent fashion than in Run Fat Boy Run, um, which yes, I've which just remembered terrible. as a film that yeah. exists. Yes, absolutely terrible, yes. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, that could go either way for me, that one, to be honest. I'm, yeah, I know where you're coming from. Are you a fan of hers? Yeah, enough. I guess yeah. she's great in workaholics. I think she's kind of like a one trick pony, but when she when she is on form, she's very, very funny. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think um, our friend James Ewan will definitely be seeing this because it is a it seems to be running in showcase cinemas, but not in all chains around the UK. So right, a bit yeah. of a limited release there. Uh, one that definitely isn't limited is my final one for this week, which is The King, uh, a big rollout by Netflix. This comes from director David Mishu, who is responsible for Animal Kingdom and The Rover, films that I think both of us to varying degrees have liked and sort of recommended on the show it's co-written and also uh, co-stars Joel Edgerton co-written by and co-starring Joel Edgerton also in the cast everybody in the world pretty much <laughs> Paul uh, Robert Pattinson Timothy Chalamet uh, Lily Rose Depp Joel Edgerton as mentioned Thomasin McKenzie and Ben Mendelsohn and Sean Harris and on and on and on and on and on uh, this tells the story of Hal uh, wayward prince and heir to the English throne who is crowned King Henry V after his tyrannical father dies, now the young king must navigate palace politics, the war his father left behind, and the emotional strings of his past life. It's a major Netflix film. Paul, are you excited? Yes. I mean, that cast alone is enough. To, should should be enough to get anyone excited. Co-written by Joel Edgerton, who is an actor that I think we both agree is incredibly underrated and should be more famous. Um, and has directed 
decent films as well. The Gift was fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to this one a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the only thing that I've been less enthused about is I'm not big on necessarily historical epics. Mm. Um, but... We, we've kind of left it as dependent on our responses to this film. It may or may not be a feature review next week. And at, at very least, it's going to come up as a film that we review in the popcorn section. So that yeah, one's The sure. King and that rolls out this Friday. So it'll be available over the weekend for anyone with Netflix. That brings us then to the end of this section, which means that we have coming up next our big feature review of this week's big feature film. That is Terminator Dark Fate right after this. Right, so back we are uh, with our feature review of the Terminator, the sixth film now, the sixth Terminator film, although technically Terminator 3, because this film ignores um, Terminator 3, Terminator Salvation, and Terminator Genesis. So Terminator 6 or Terminator 3, depending on how you want to look at it. But regardless, it's called Terminator Dark Fate. Uh, this is directed by Tim Miller, who bought us Deadpool um, and produced by James Cameron. Pete, set this one up for us, if you can, unless you want me to have a go. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, so as you said, ignoring the events beyond Terminator 2, James Cameron wasn't involved in those films and is back involved here. Uh, we have uh, Sarah Connor and a hybrid cyborg human played here by Mackenzie Davis um, who must protect a young girl from a newly modified liquid Terminator from the future who is able to not only regenerate and shapeshift, um, we're familiar with these features, but also to separate into two distinct <laughs> entities creating the greatest threat to the future of humanity uh yes this one is very much in the wheelhouse of those first two films which initially um you know starting out with this chat will be i think a massively um encouraging thing for fans of the series but before we get into our thoughts for good and for bad here's a little clip so you're here to protect her what are you never seen one like you before almost human I am human, just enhanced, you know. Increased speed and strength. Which means I can rip your throat out if you piss me off, so don't. Your turn. My name is Sarah Connor. When I was about her age, a Terminator was sent to kill me to stop the birth of my son, John, leader of the resistance. We changed the future saved three billion lives so let's start on the fact that this kind of retcons the series um and follows on directly from terminator 2 um good or bad idea on this one pete how, how fond are you have, have, have you seen any of the ones past terminator 2 do you remember any of them do you care um yeah i've seen all of them yeah yeah i've seen all of them um yeah, so I, do you think I, it's a good idea ignoring those films is probably the question i'm asking i guess i mean i think it's it's more a sort of ego-infused idea by uh, on the part of James Cameron to a certain <laughs> degree. But um, yeah, I mean, I've got nothing against that. I mean, they are far and away the best films in this franchise. You know, there's yeah. absolutely no argument to be had there and you would be mad to think otherwise. Uh, so from that point of view, it's absolutely a good thing. Um, I would suggest that maybe the danger that this film could run into and maybe did run into a little bit at times, and we'll get onto that, is that it is at risk of retreading ground that has been trodden before in uh sort of you know much vaunted and praised uh films that might sit in your memory um as you watch the events unfold here but 
having said that, what we do have is this injection of a new character who is this, um, yeah, like enhanced version of a former soldier played by Mackenzie Davis. And I think Mackenzie Davis, for people who don't know, because I think we, we put up a thing on Instagram sort of saying, on the one hand, possible problems <laughs> yeah. with the movie. On the other hand, Mackenzie Davis. The reason for that excitement is that Mackenzie Davis is so good in Halt and Catch Fire, the series, but then also in Tully, The Martian, uh, Blade Runner 2049, and the San Junipero episode of, of Black Mirror, which yeah, people love so absolutely. much. So th this is an actress, a Canadian actress, on the up and up, um, I think it's fair to say. And then we've also got this sparky opening sequence that sets this film up with a load of uh, Spanish language dialogue, which seems uh, initially to me, uh, it was like a little bit invigorating because it's got a different feel to it maybe than, mm. than you might expect from the franchise. Uh, Natalie Reyes is introduced, as is Diego Bonetta, as um, on the one hand, the girl who needs protecting, and on the other hand, the guy who is going to try to stop that from happening. Uh, in the form of the new, what do they call this version of the Terminator, Paul? Can you remember? Uh, the Rev Nine. The Rev Nine. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It sounds like a like a Dyson Hoover or something like that. The Rev mm. Nine. Um, it does. Yeah. But but yeah. Uh, so we've got new elements added here, and that's great, right? To reinvigorate yeah. this thing, because what we yeah, didn't no, want is something that in, uh, immediately feels tired. No, I completely agree with that, and those new elements are great. Just to. Go further back to the beginning of the film. Though. There will be spoilers because of what I've wanted. There are spoilers here for Terminator Dark Fate because a lot of what I want to talk about is going to spoil it. So I'll put that one out there now. Like you have that bit of the you have that when it dropped to the Spanish language bit. I thought that was great. Let's talk about the the very opening scene where it ties it directly to Terminator Two. And my God, did I worry when I first saw that scene because that is one of the, probably one of the clumsiest scenes to try and link a film to another film that I think I've ever seen, Pete. Where do, where do you stand on that? So basically, just to set that up, so we have, we have um, they tie it to Terminator 2 by Sarah Connor and John Connor being as, as seemingly in safety on a beach holiday, taking them back to the ages they were at the end of Terminator 2. Another Terminator, another T-800 Terminator appears, played by... A, a, D.H. Schwarzenegger and kills John Connor and then that's seemingly the only link to Terminator 2. At that point, I'll be honest, alarm bells started ringing for me. Pete, any thoughts on that that bit particularly? Um, yeah, I mean, they, they needed to insert that scene, I suppose, for this thing to play out in the way that it does. Mm. Um, and so it's sort of a bit of gluing this thing on. But but to be honest, man, like I'm not going to, you know, maybe reveal all of my cards this early, but... If, no. The fact that that initial sequence felt a bit glued on as like you sort of sellotaped something onto something that was already finished yeah. <laughs> is largely how I feel about the movie, even though, uh, and we'll go on to it, uh, there are you know more things to say that are positive about this film, I, I think. Um, it, it, to me, I love Terminator 1 and I love Terminator 2 and I know you do too. And we didn't need this. Um, we didn't need this. So that's why when I say, you know, it, it, things like Mackenzie Davis being introduced are fantastic. Having said that, Mackenzie Davis having her own action franchise would have been just as exciting to me. Um, and maybe there wasn't the, the opportunity for that. But yeah, parts of the movie feel like they are desperately trying to be relevant and, and you're really arguing the case that like this is necessary and this is needed and this has a place in modern action cinema. And I'm not convinced that it does um yeah uh but i said i wasn't gonna get negative so i won't get negative yet no. um okay. but yeah so so do you feel like you said you were worried do you feel like that's that was an awkward way of 
introducing I think that to part me, of the story. So for me, it was I think it was an awkward way to, to start the film. I was worried. I found that a bit clumsy. When it got to the Spanish language scenes, I was just like, oh, this is this feels a bit fresh. Except and except that you'd seen most of the opening in the trailer, admittedly. Um, I be, I'll be honest. I the more I, the more time I spent with this film, the more I warmed to it. Like to start with, I was just like, okay, I'm not not massively into this. This does feel like it's a bit like it's going to be a retread. And yeah, there are there are certainly retread elements as you would get with any sequel. But the the longer the film went on, I'll be honest with you, the the more I enjoyed it. Um, it's not a patch on Terminator One or Two. Don't don't get me wrong, and it's not without its problems. Um, but I I quite liked certain things they did with it, and like so you have this. As the film goes on, and then Schwarzenegger, this Schwarzenegger becomes gradually involved in in the plot. It's fairly predictable that some basically someone sending messages, uh, warning um, Sarah Connor when Terminus is going to arrive, and she doesn't know who it is initially. And then, heaven forbid, who who knew it was Schwarzenegger's Terminator character? Um, but for me, it was quite interesting that that was the Terminator that actually killed John Connor. Um, I quite like that element to it. So when Sarah Connor realizes she's going to have to get help from a Terminator to fight this new Rev Nine Terminator, bear with me. The amount of times I use the word Terminator here, uh, she has to accept that she's going to get help from the thing that killed her son, which I quite liked. Um, and I liked all of that, and I, I warmed to it to be honest. And even the bits where I, I think you will probably argue it got a bit silly, where you have essentially. So Schwarzenegger's Terminator has completed his mission and then has nothing to do and ends up looking after a family, um, which to me initially seemed a bit silly. So when they find Schwarzenegger's Terminator, he is living in isolation with a family. He's kind of become a father figure, hasn't he, essentially? Um, which to me, initially, I was just like, that's silly. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, there's something about that that works quite well for me. Because if you look at the the character arc of, of the T-800 in Terminator 2, ultimately, he was capable of learning and he did form like a father-like bond with John Connor in Terminator 2 for sure. So then you have, for me, the idea of this Terminator that's finished its mission and then has fuck all else to do for the next 30 years is going to find something to do because it's a learning machine. And I quite like those elements, as, as silly and, and twee as they were. And it was at that point where I started warming to the film, in all honesty. Pete, any thoughts on those bits? Uh, yeah, like I feel you, I, I think it still locks in with my general um, feeling, which is that like, for example, that the fact that this learning machine, you know, becomes more human and learns the ways in which humans behave is some is an idea that we've seen done numerous times in films since yeah, the fair. first Terminator came out. So yeah. that's not to say that that can't be done again, but maybe it, nothing felt entirely in sort of inventive or, or new about it. But what I did like in that sequence is the fact that, first of all, let's refer to him by his proper name, which is Carl. Uh, <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger has now reintegrated as Carl. And he is some sort of a drapier who at certain points in the film will espouse the virtues of uh, particular colour schemes for a child's bedroom when decorating as parents. Which I thought was great, yeah. to be honest. I, I, I just thought it was very, very funny just to hear Schwarzenegger talking about drapes. Yeah. And uh, he just, he's so sick. And there's the one point where I think he, he turns up it turns up the military and he was like i'm carl i do drapes yeah i mean this, this is what to me were, were some of the sort of shining examples of how when the film works is when the film realized and the filmmakers realized that arnold schwarzenegger is a man in his 70s who is really good at delivering a sort of knowing nudge nudge wink wink reference to his own yeah. work and his own personal history through like a funny one-liner or a little monologue those are great what arnold schwarzenegger is not is any kind of a viable action star at this point and the times in which the film tries to make him such just to me felt really creaky and and tenuous and lots and lots of cgi and we'll get onto that in, in time um, but yeah no I, I absolutely feel you in the sense that I enjoyed the kind of comic relief of that character and where it sat in the film um, 
Can I swing it in a different direction and talk for a second about Linda yes. Hamilton? Yes. Yeah, so Linda Hamilton, of course, people are aware, is, is Sarah Connor. And Linda Hamilton has been attached to this franchise since Terminator 1, the Terminator, way back in the day. Linda Hamilton, Paul, am I mad? Linda Hamilton is not a very good actress at this point. Uh, she's been away from, you know, big budget cinematic work for a very long time. She's done quite a lot of television work. And I know that she went back because this is a, you know, a project where she is absolutely... Um, indelibly marked into the the history and, and mythology of the Terminator but she's not a very good actress and here unfortunately what this performance felt like in the film is somebody who with all that, that gap of time has gone back and just basically shorthanded their preparation by re-watching the first two films <laughs> and doing a sort of facsimile of the performance in those films but the thing is that a young Linda Hamilton that worked Linda Hamilton, at the age that she is now, it felt like every line was delivered like a sort of petulant teenager. And it was jarring <laughs> and it felt awkward. And I felt, I kind of felt for her. Like I read about this, that uh, the director, Tim Miller, had to uh, keep refocusing her because she would smile all the time when she was shooting guns because she's having a, such a good time on set. Right. I'm sure she had a great time on set. I don't know that that's to the benefit of the movie. And I think that... Unfortunately, because you've got Mackenzie Davis, who I think is really good here, really strong and looks totally at home yeah. as a sort of burgeoning talent as an action star, it even more it puts into sort of stark relief the fact that Linda Hamilton isn't comfortable in this territory. And and that's a problem when you give her this much screen time in the movie. I mean, did, did it strike you or did that kind of not bother I mean, you I, too much? I can I can see that point. It didn't bother you too much. I was just it was just nice to have the Sarah Connor character back in Terminator in all honesty, but I I can see your point and I think yeah, certainly the the newer additions to the cast for me were considerably better than the kind of the the hanger the, the leftovers from the older films, if that makes sense. All the stars of the older films, leftovers maybe too harsh a word. Um, and again, like McKen Mackenzie Davis, I think is comes out as probably the shining light of this film, to be honest. Um, as does I've completely forgotten his name now. The guy that plays the other term, the, um, the Rev Nine Terminator. I thought he was great as a great as the sort of faceless Rev Nine Terminator as well. Um, well, not faceless. That's, that's unfair. But yeah, certainly, I think the the youngsters, the young, the younger cast members, and the new additions to the franchise did a better job than some of the older additions. Yeah, although although I would say on that point, from my point of view anyway, Natalie Reyes um, doesn't come out of this thing with loads of credit. I think that again, I can't necessarily blame her and more blame the the casting of the movie, but her delivery of lines in English is needed work. Um, it needed work b before taking on a project of this size. Like, again, like I, it sounds like I'm being horrible about people who have worked obviously really hard here, but it's such a big property. It's going out so wide. And I feel like mm -hmm. we've got, I mean, Reyes is better than Linda Hamilton is here, but but yeah, it, it hardly sets the world alight in terms of a clutch of performances other than, I think, particularly Mackenzie Davis, as we've kind of mentioned a few times already. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, Arnold Schwarzenegger delivering one-liners, fantastic. I mean, he's clearly still a really charismatic and magnetic yeah. guy, and he's every bit you know, it's significant enough to have back again and again and again. And it's just good that the, the filmmakers had something interesting, at least at times, to do with him in this movie, rather than trotting out the same lines again and again and again. And yeah. more what we get here is sort of deflected or, or, or you know, half callback lines from other characters to, to lines that have gone before that we all know and, and love and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, th yeah, those things notwithstanding. So something that we haven't talked about so far 
is the integration of CGI in the movie. And um, my prevailing feeling about this is that it is not good. <laughs> what do you feel? Uh, no, I, I agree, to be honest. And I just think, I think the trouble is you see there are certain films now where they have, like you look, you look at the MCU entries, they have so much money to spend on CGI that they just look almost flawless. And then this clearly is a bit needed more money than was spent on it to do what they're doing with the CGI. I, I remember when I saw the trailer, I was just like, okay, I'm worried about this because the CGI looked unfinished in the trailer. It looks better than it did in the trailer, but there is too much CG in this film, to be to be perfectly honest. I mean, there's only some ways you can do some certain Terminator effects. I get that. But there's some effects in this that didn't need to be CGI, for sure. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not there's necessarily too much CGI. It's just not good enough here. And, and I would I would agree. I would totally agree with you on that point. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't work well enough here. Like, certainly the effects on the Rev-9 Terminator don't, don't look great, in all honesty. It, looks, it almost looks like a TV show in places. Yeah, and the, the, the particular thing that struck me about CG in this is when um, there's like jumping and landing. It just, there was sort of a yeah. like a weightlessness to the way that those creations like interacted with physical surfaces in the world that just made it like feel yeah weightless feel inconsequential and therefore reduced the impact of those characters in the film and like I thought about other things like there's a sequence in it it's sort of um, a battlefield sequence that reminded me of um, uh, what's the film. Uh, uh, Kill, die, repeat, or whatever. Uh, live, do, live, die, Edge repeat. of tomorrow. Edge of tomorrow. That's it. Yeah. Edge of tomorrow. Yeah, of of tomorrow. tomorrow. Um, yeah for, for kind of two reasons. One, because there's something that, that in my mind anyway, it links Mackenzie Davis to Emily Blunt in that movie in terms of their performances. But also the fact that um, I just think that film does a much better job of having a load of stuff that had to be um, digitally edited and added to, but allowing it to feel crunchy and impactful and, yeah. and, and sort of gargantuan and sizable and so on. So that's, yeah, one of those things that, that happens. And I guess like we've talked about quite a lot on this show is like when a film makes you think of a sequence done better in another film, that's not a good thing because it's quite distracting, I think, for, for your appreciation or something. Um, yeah, where, where else? Where, where do you want to go next on this one? I mean, I, I kind of wanted where I sit overall is I, I still had a great time with this, to be honest. And I, I can see for all its faults in which there are uh, there are more than a handful of faults. I still had a good time with this. I think the, the set pieces, although could have looked better, I think were still for the most part pretty well done. The finale genuinely had me in goosebumps on the edge of my seat like the the final fight uh, I thought was great I thought it was really really well put together it was genuinely exciting whether that excitement whether I enjoy this film as much second time round once the kind of the this the 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 initial impact of a big screen has worn off I genuinely don't know and again a lot of this a lot of this may be due to my levels of expectation being incredibly low uh, because I thought this was going to be a complete write-off and I did not think I'd enjoy even a second of this film so perhaps I've gone perhaps I'm over praising this film on first viewing because it wasn't for me a complete disaster but there is enough that I really liked here that I had a good time with it it's not a film of the year contender by a long stretch but for me, it's a lot better than the other sequels. But then, yeah, I suppose building on what I was saying before then, like think about the sequence in the aeroplane in mm. this movie. It just felt like 
you you don't get to hang with what Tom Cruise is doing in that field at the moment, with what even the Fast and Furious franchise is doing in that field. And what you've done is you've staged a set piece that makes people compare your movie to other movies. Even the sequence in Uncharted, where all of the baggage falls out of the back of an exploding plane. Do you know what? I hadn't thought of that, but you make a really good point. And I can I can see where you're coming from now, because to be honest, because... Terminator 1, Terminator 1, Terminator 2 especially. I mean, Terminator 2 set the bar for big-budget yeah. action films. Like, even now, when I watched it a few weeks ago in the cinema, like, it still looks incredible. The, the, the sense of scale in Terminator 2 is almost now almost unrivaled mm. in, in still however many years on. So, no, I take that point, to be honest. I, I, I see entirely where you're coming from. Like, Terminator should be setting the bar, not imitating other people's better work. Yeah, and that's that's interesting then, because you were saying, you know, maybe you feel more positive about it because you went in with sort of low expectations. And maybe my take on the film is coloured by the fact that I go in with expectations that are more guided by, yes, the Terminator property, but also by the fact that the year is 2019 and we're dealing with a clutch of people making action cinema at the moment where at least at a sort of spectacle level, your standards are raised way higher mm. than maybe they were at, at certain times in the past for particular types of action sequences. And so if Terminator does something totally different, then I can judge it completely differently. But once it steps yeah. into the territory of its um, peers... I suppose, at least historically, then it starts to come off looking tired and jaded and unnecessary and try hard and unoriginal. Mm. Um, and maybe that's where I come down on it harder because I hope for more from something that's going to have, you know, the sort of budget and, and reach of something like this and the name because the name's important, right? The, when people talk to you about your favourite action films of all time, we're always going to mention Term the Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day and, and, and I think that name gets watered down and although I would say this is one of, maybe damning with faint praise, this is one of the four best Terminator movies, um, it, it, it still is, um, it feels a little bit like chipping further away maybe at the legacy of those first two films although like you said Paul I mean they are beyond uh, reproach at this point I mean you know how much damage can you actually do to Terminator 1 and Terminator mm. 2 after all this time and all the all the credit that they've they've sort of gathered in, in that time so yeah I just I mean I guess to summarise my position apart from the action movie stuff and the performances being fairly weak other than one I uh, just felt like it, this thing was less heart pounding and, and less tense and less exciting than than even my relatively low expectations, albeit it was probably a better movie than Genesis and Salvation. Um, I'd have an argument that maybe Terminator 3 is a better movie, but I mean, that's another podcast <laughs> and another time. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but but things to like, definitely things to like here from my, from my side of this conversation anyway. Yeah, no, I, I would. Yeah, I think there's, there's things to like. I enjoyed it first time round. For me, it was it was a fun popcorn ride at the cinema. Um, it certainly hasn't redefined the wheel. It certainly doesn't hold a candle to the previous films. Um, yeah, I'd be intrigued to watch it back to back with Terminator Three because I still think there's good in Terminator Three, and a lot of people completely hate that film. Um, so yeah, I'm intrigued to watch it back to back with Terminator Three, which I may do when it comes out on Blu-ray actually, um, and then and then see where we stand. So yeah, I think I'm more positive than you. I think I, I had a good time with it. 
but yeah, with some with some caveats. <laughs> well, we though, Paul. Um, I see. Normally, at this point, I have like a lovely segue into our top five, but I'm not sure I have one now. I'm not sure, I'm not sure there is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I can't say that either of us were horrified by this instalment in the Terminator franchise, but what we were horrified by were the five scariest scenes of all time, which is the top five that we will be counting down right after this. Right, so as I said, our Halloween theme top five is the five scariest scenes of all time. This is scariest scenes that we find scary. This is scenes that, in entirely our opinion, we're not going to sit there and argue why they're technically scarier. Or I mean, we'll probably will give some context as to why we find them scary. But this is our, you know, our personal opinion. So feel free to disagree with us. Feel free to post your own top fives and tell us if you think we've missed anything. Uh, by all means. Um, so yeah, I'm going to jump in. I think uh, and start with my number five, um, which is. I'm not sure the best way to describe this scene, to be honest. I'm going to try and creatively describe these scenes as well as we go along. So this is um, the scene from John Carpenter's uh, 1982 classic, The Thing, uh, where a man gets his arms cut off whilst performing an autopsy on a body by teeth that mysteriously appear from a man's midriff. Um, what ha- what what further happens in the scene is two incredibly creepy mutants then burst out of the man's the aforementioned corpse chest and uh and a head with legs scutters across the floor um yeah if you don't know why that's scary then you clearly haven't seen the thing um and it's one of those it's one of those scenes that you will only ever will only ever really have the same impact the first time you watch that scene it's one of those films that i wish i could just watch for the first time over and over and over again because no, I've watched that quite young, I think, and no one warned me it was coming. I had no idea. And then suddenly you're just like, what the fuck has just happened? And then suddenly this big fucking mutant thing bursts out of this guy's chest. Legs erupt out of the guy's head. You've got this head, head crab spider thing, often imitated, never bettered, scutting across the floor. And then Kurt Russell just fucking trying to flamethrower everything to death. Like, genuinely... If you don't know, yeah, just absolutely takes you by surprise if you haven't seen haven't seen the film before. I'd say even more shocking, probably it's on the par with the scene in Alien where the chestburster explodes out of his chest at the dinner, which hasn't made this list, but I wanted to give it an honourable mention. That's my number five. Nice. Um, my number five, Paul, I'm glad that you said I'm going to give an honourable mention because then I don't feel that bad about my number five because my number five, right. I, I'm going to title Staring and, it, and it's effectively, right. I, I would say two main sequences that I'm going to focus on. So two films, but I won't go into great detail on either just to get the point across that when people in movies do weird, unexpected staring for a long time, I find it very, very upsetting. Uh, and the two that I wanted to point out in particular are, of course, the infamous sequence at the end of the Blair Witch. Now, not just the Blair Witch Project, the original, but the one that was remade that we saw, what, two or three years back? Yeah, which I really, really liked. Which The Adam Wingard version. The Adam Wingard version messed me up at the end of the movie. Yeah. Like, I would yeah, say, yeah, in, totally. in terms of this sequence, more so even than, than the original film, which I saw trying to set the circumstances as much as I could to, to scare the life out of myself. I watched it on my own in the dark late at night, the first one. Um, but yeah, the the fact that here we have this this Blair Witch curse that to you know shortcut the entire plot of the film leads to a sequence in which the um, protagonist enters a room and sees uh, another member of their group stood head down staring in the corner of the room. In a th- it's one of those like 
primal things that like harks back to the bad kid at school whose ultimate punishment would be to, like the shame of standing in the corner um, and waiting for their fate. And here you know that there's something that is taken over this person and made them act in that way and and it kind of actually it links to uh, then the other sequence which i want to put at joint number five which is the original ending of the first paranormal activity movie in okay, it, yeah. in which um there is a brilliant use of uh, like in camera heads up display stuff where the camera that's filming the bed in which the couple are sleeping has on it a timer which shows you what time it is at any given moment and also how long the camera's been running for and um, after getting out of bed I believe killing her husband leaving the house and then coming back in the woman just stands by the bed and stares at her husband yeah. on the bed and then you're watching from the POV of the camera and it like is running the, the clock forward speeds up and she stood there for I think about four or five hours I oh, oh stop yourself I just <laughs> the idea that somebody that you think that you know well could behave in that kind of fashion is it was too much i don't rate the paranormal activity movies particularly highly and neither do i necessarily want to die on the hill that the blair witch is some massively important phenomenon but those sequences boy yeah they they hit me pretty hard so that's my number five stare staring at stuff or people what have you got a number enough. four fair enough uh, number four, I've got a scene from William Friedkin's uh, classic, well, very, fairly well-revered horror film, The Exorcist. Um, but it's not the scene I don't think a lot of people would be thinking of. This is a scene from the director's cut of The Exorcist. It's the scene where Reagan crab walks down the stairs. Have you seen the, ex the director's cut in this scene? Because this scene, fucking hell. Like, The Exorcist, every, every time I watch The Exorcist, I'm, I almost forget just quite how disturbing it is. I don't know why, because I, I, know, I know it is. But every time I watch it... It creeps me out almost like I'm watching it for the first time. It's an incredible film. But I think and I think it's because I'd seen the film before but not seen the director's cut, so I'd never seen this crab walk scene before. So she's she scuttles downstairs in the in manner of kind of a reverse crab. And it's so well done and it's such a I mean, it's it's almost it's it's kind of like an overused horror trope now, where you get people scuttling around in, in crab position because it is a very unnatural position for the human body to be in. But it's so well done here, and I didn't. It's the kind of film that I didn't really think a director's cut could that add that much to The Exorcist for me at least because it's such a well put together film. However, this crab this crab walk scene in particular just added a whole new level of. Ugh, I feel horrible watching this film. It's just just ah. Oh, just you feel grim throughout it and it's just a scene that just makes me incredibly uncomfortable no matter how many times i see it properly creeps me out so that's the uh the crab walk scene from the director's cut of the exorcist is my number four yeah uh, horrendous i mean this is just <laughs> yeah. gonna get more and more horrendous as we yeah. go along i suppose <laughs> yeah. so strap yourself in but uh yeah number four for me then is a sort of different kind of um scare again as paul said at the outset these are pretty personal i think that this list is a pretty personal list because something that scares me may not scare you and sort of vice versa but the one that i've picked at number four is uh, what i've titled here beach death and a crying child and it is from jonathan glazer's film under the skin um <laughs> this is a sequence that takes place at the beach as you would expect uh, from my description wherein uh, the alien like creature played by scarlett johansson um, meets a man who's looking out over the ocean and asks him what it is that he's doing there and he says oh he just likes to get away it's like a you know nothing place away from everything and um what follows is 
I think a fixed camera position, I've watched this preparing for this, and I think it's pretty much a fixed camera position. There might be two fixed camera positions. So this kind of dispassionate camera that is only interested in watching what plays out without trying to add any drama, any sense of extra doom or importance or, you know, any crash zooming or, or the, the kind of things that we're used to seeing in standard horror films are largely absent from the sequence. And what we have instead is a thing where um, a swimmer who is in trouble is um, aided by the man who swims out to help that uh, struggling person. And when he gets back to the shore, he's sort of swallowed a lot of water and he's struggling and he's he looks like he's almost at the point of, of death on the shoreline and Johansson's character walks up to him uh, again no camera movement nothing no warning of really what's going to happen uh, picks up a rock from the beach almost seems like a, at random and bludgeons him uh, it hits him one time over the head hard enough to end him his life and then uh, we have I think a cut and then Johansson's character is dragging the body of this man leaving an abandoned crying child alone on the beach uh, with no one completely vulnerable and it's a sequence that upset a lot of people for the reason that you know there's a child involved and it seems sort of nasty and unfair but it does an amazing job of encapsulating what that Scarlett Johansson character is about and the very fact of like a an alien disposition within the external uh, like apparatus and appearance of a human being and so therefore, I think, makes an important point about the the lack of humanity um, between human beings as well as between, you know, otherworldly creatures and human beings. And it's one of those a little bit like uh, what comes to mind as well is like that sequence in Last House on the Left with the uh, girl running into the water and being shot. Yeah. Like, and, and a lot of things came to mind when I was thinking of this particular type of scare, which is people acting without the humanity that you expect of people and in this case it's not really a person but it looks like a person and everything in us as a viewer is trained to expect certain level a certain level of humanity from people who you know present as human beings and this kind of links to my number three as well but yeah that's my number four which is uh, under the skin from jonathan glazer and particularly be uh, beach death crying child <laughs> Right, my number three, uh, and I won't labour on this one because it is horrible. Uh, this is the now infamous and I believe originally cut tree rape scene from Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, um, which is quite frankly one of the most disturbing scenes I think I can say I've ever seen in a horror film. And I deliberately will put myself through stuff that's been banned. So I would say I sort of watch a fair amount of, of extreme stuff. This probably upsets me more than any of the other scenes that I've seen in, in, in many, many films, to be honest. It's, I mean, if it's... It's meant to be scary. It is scary. And basically, the, the gist of it is the female character in The Evil Dead thinks she's escaped the house, gets tied up by a haunted tree, um, and then the tree repeatedly penetrates her. It's horrible. There's a creeping sense of nastiness to this scene. Um, and it really... It's yeah, Evil Dead is a na is a very effective but also very very nasty horror film. Uh, I'm not going to labour much more on the point of that because if that doesn't disturb you, then you need to you need a talking to. Uh, Pete, what have you got next? <laughs> next for me then is well another nasty horror film. To be honest with you, um, this one had to be on this list for me because of how it impacted me at the at the time. And to be honest, I rewatched it today. 
and it still was really upsetting and it's so many times I've seen it and so long removed but it is the meat hook scene in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, th this, so th this is what I've written for, for this one. So we start the sequence with the girl, I think she's called Barb in the movie, uh, exploring the house that turns out to be uh, not a good place to explore. Uh, there's a low camera angle. She's all, you know, um, little top and short shorts and all uh, summery innocence. And she goes into this house and as soon as she passes over the threshold, we go from summer to dank, dirty, horrible darkness and everything's changed. The whole mood's changed. And then she explores a room looking for her friends and what's in the room? Just a shitload of bones, obviously. And then the, the soundtrack starts doing all this weird stuff. So we get kind of like bone clicky, clattery, rattly sounds in the background. We've also got this constant, incessant squawking and clucking from a chicken that the camera takes a while on and then it takes a while away from and then focuses on that is stuck in a cage because of course clucking and squealing in a cage with no escape it's a clear marker when I first watched this this was apparent let alone now it's a clear marker that this person <coughs> isn't getting out of this situation there's no escape from yeah. this situation we know that already and then just when there might be a way out because she's going to retrace her steps to the door out of the bone kingdom and the screeching uh, chicken she sees the exit through which she came runs towards it and here we have a heavy set lunatic squealing behind her in this kind of plastic apron and mask uh, of course it's Leatherface he grabs her like an adult grabbing a child thus such is the difference in size between these two characters he takes her into the, the other side room and puts her on a meat hook like he's putting there a piece of you know uh, abattoir meat she's not a human being she's a piece of meat and then what he does next is very calmly goes about his duties goes about his tinkering around in the room which then leads to him firing up the chainsaw and dismembering one of her friends as she is there squealing hopeless writhing with absolutely no escape and no hope on a meat hook like seeing that for the first time at age Oh, goodness. I don't know if my, my parents will listen to this show, but uh, too young, Paul, too young, uh, was just like somebody had introduced a kind of evil into the world that I didn't previously realise existed. And, and it made an indelible mark on me, I think. So that's why, yeah, the meat hook sequence in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is my number three. Okay, at my number two, oh, it was hard to narrow down this list. And the more I'm thinking, I'm thinking of other scenes now, I'm thinking of other scenes. I'm going to go with, and we mentioned Wes Craven earlier, I'm going to go with uh, Nancy's basement dream from the original Nightmare on Elm Street, where he is Freddy Krueger, as far as I'm concerned, probably his most scariest, um, where he's just grinding his knife fingers down the boiler room and it's just basically, he's just a, sorry, there's, there's, there's no other word for the way Freddy Krueger is in this film. And I think it's it's easy to rem it's easy to forget when you look at kind of how they play Freddy Krueger for comedy in the sequels. Uh, and there is a lot of sequels and they're, they're not great. Um, and they, it kind of turns into a caricature. But in in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, he is he is a piece of, he is a nasty piece of work. And I think this this um this particular scene just is just, it still has me on edge i think it's it's the sound it's much like you mentioned with texas chainsaw massacre and the sound design i think it's the sound design of him grinding his grinding his claws down the down the boiler and he just looks he just looks menacing he doesn't look silly in this he looks menacing he looks terrifying um and that is yeah the, the nancy's boiler room dream from the original nightmare on elm street at number two that's right isn't it yeah 
Yes. Uh, so number two for me is my, um, like that guy from What Culture would say, it's my one per list, Paul. It's my David Lynch film. Um, so <laughs> number two for me is simply, in my notes anyway, titled Man Behind the Wall. And I think everybody will know the sequence I'm talking about. It's the sequence that takes place in the diner. I think YouTube call it, uh, the uploader there called it the diner scene. Uh, yeah. This is an exchange between two characters, uh, which starts off, uh, sat in this diner called Winkies, starts off as what seems like a sort of innocent exchange where one character is confessing to rather like he's rather embarrassed about confessing to the fact that he had a dream and the dream he says took place in a diner it took place in this diner and there was a presence there and the presence had power and control and it was so scary I was so scared and it was out there it was out the other side of the parking lot he says so um he says, uh, to finish the sequence, he says, I hope I never see that face again. And underneath it, there's this low humming sound and this building sense that we're either in a dream or the dream that he had was very real or that everything that we're seeing in the film perhaps is dream or a nightmare. And we're taken with these two characters to go and investigate. Well, let's just look behind the wall. I'm sure there's nothing behind the wall. We're not in the dream. We're in the real world. This is fine. And as they go out, Lynch changes his approach to filming the sequence so that we've got this kind of queasy camera movement coming down the steps. And uh, again, being the sense of being unsettled just sort of builds and builds as we get closer to this corner of a nondescript wall in a nondescript car park by a nondescript diner. And then at the moment of reveal, um, with this low hum, with this building anticipation, the character behind the wall, the thing, the being, the presence behind the wall sort of seems to slide out. And it's not what you see I think, the first time you encounter these. It's what you think you see, and it's what he does with the sound, because the sound sort of drops out and sounds um, like it's underwater almost. Like, if you've ever blacked out, because I am a person who has blacked out before, the feeling of sort of your eardrums filling with blood just before you pass out, and then you get the character hit as if shot by a shotgun in the chest. He yeah. falls backwards into the arms of the guy that he's been talking to. And for me... It, it had exactly that effect when I saw it the first time. I almost felt like my own heart tighten with what had happened. And still, I didn't quite know why I felt that strongly about it and why this all felt so wrong and so scary and why it had got so deep under my skin. But it really had. I mean, you watch the rest of Mulholland Drive and it'll all make a bit more sense, perhaps. But yeah, yeah <laughs> number two for me is uh, Man Behind the Wall from Mulholland Drive. Uh, which brings me to my number one scariest scene of all time. Uh, the second time this film's come up from this list, I don't think this this scene will be a surprise to you, Pete, but this is the the Sawyer family dinner scene from the aforementioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, which, as I've, I've talked about this scene a lot on this show, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, I don't really care. Um, it is, for me, the single... I mean, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for me, is the greatest horror film of all time. I just... I think it's flawless. I don't think there's a creepier film in existence. I think you talked about the sound design here. It's fantastic. But for me, it all culminates in this just, frankly, horrible scene where you have the family of the... Uh, the family of the... the let's say, unwell uh, Sawyer family all together sitting in the same room um, trying to get Grandad... What, what are they trying to get Grandad to do? They're trying to get Grandad to hammer someone's... Yeah, to complete complete the kill by hitting that's it. the victim on the head. 
yeah so they're all sitting around at dinner like like it's no thing um the victim there um is just sitting there just absolutely terrified just screaming panting as you would be in this situation and they're trying to get their disabled grandfather to complete the kill by bludgeoning this person with like a mat a hammer stroke mallet thing and it's just horrendous like absolutely horrendous in in how they handle this and the length of time they spend on this scene as well like just it's just if you've uh, yeah I just for me again it's a bit like when you watch the exorcist every time i watch this i feel uncomfortable watching texas chainsaw massacre and i've seen texas chainsaw massacre probably 12 13 times i just studied for my dissertation so i've had to watch it a lot and this scene does not lose any of that power no matter how many times i've seen this film it's an incredible scene in an incredible film and that's why the sawyer family dinner scene uh, makes it sound quite nice is my number one uh, scariest scene of all time Nice. Yeah. And I just wanted to say on that one, because we both put Texas Chainsaw on the list somewhere for, for different scenes. I think what happens, what's so effective in that movie and, and maybe why it sticks with people so much in terms of being terrifying is the way in which you really feel that sense of like, like with the, the Sawyer family, as you said, you, you don't really want to be there but you no. haven't got a choice by virtue of the fact that that's where the film's taken you and you yeah. feel sort of glued to it and glued to the the events unfolding but also you want to get away and i think that's exactly the the feeling that great horror directors are capable mm. of instilling in people watching the film so yes um my choice here paul again it's a pretty personal one um and uh, yeah going back to be honest with you going back to watch this one is something i kind of wish i hadn't done right, um, okay. <laughs> because because i don't like it uh but it is also at the top of the list so i've got to talk about it this one i'm going to call it's all for you do you know what film i'm talking about no I do tell so this is the sequence in the film uh it's the film the omen in which Uh, the nanny uh commits suicide very publicly uh what you have is a a big party taking place in the garden along with merry-go-round and clowns and friends and smiling faces and then as damien is on the merry-go-round with the, the his peers Damien, of course, here being a very young child wearing adult-style clothing, yeah. which adds something. Uh, he hears this call saying in a very bright and breezy voice, Damien, Damien, look at me, look at me, I love you. And the camera moves up to see where this is coming from and up on uh, from a window, in front of a window on this giant lavish home outside, the, which is the garden, you see that Nanny... Um, has a noose around her neck and is smiling and looks perfectly happy. Uh, And then she completes what she's saying by saying, it's all for you, and jumps forwards and down and snaps her own neck and dangles above the people watching up in a kind of mixture of confusion and horror. And the reason why this is so terrifying to me and particularly again like Texas Chainsaw because of the age I probably was too young when I saw it for the first time it's not just seeing suicide on film is horrifying it's also seeing a person who seems to be happy externally suddenly being dead (laughs) 
<laughs> for want of putting it a better, a better way, right? She's really breezy. She doesn't have any hesitation. We don't have the usual hallmarks of suicide as they are captured, suicides as they're captured in film, which is, you know, hesitation and doubt and trembling and nerves and, and, and you know, uncertainty. What we have is someone who seems very happy, uh, very well adjusted, and then they've killed themselves. So anybody could at any time, perhaps, is the, what, what happens mm. with this thing. And then it's the fact that it's shot in this way where we watch her dangling. It doesn't just cut away no. to the next part of the film. We watch her dangling. We see a reaction shot on uh, the face of Damien's mother, which lasts for fucking ages. And then we go around these people and amongst them we have, uh, yeah, a clown. As I said, we have the kids still going around on this merry-go-round. Uh, we have all the children who are just running around now looking up. Some of them looking weirdly like unaffected which is another element to the horror here, I think. And in that instant, it felt like, for those people there, childhood stopped. It just stopped. In an instant, in that same way where for so many people, an incident draws an end to innocence or childhood. In an instant, one person's decision, one person's tragedy, one person's accident, and it's all gone. And I think at the age when I saw this first, I had not really got any great concept about what suicide was and then all of a sudden here it is and I don't know why and I don't know and of course you know you watch The Omen and you you understand a little bit yeah. more why yeah. but that scene in isolation was just absolutely devastating and last point here throughout the sequence from before the event during the event to after the event, we have a twinkly soundtrack like you would get from a music box that would be, you know, possessed by a, an olden times child. And it just, it's so jarring and so horrible and so impactful that, to be honest with you, the rest of the omen can't live up to that. The no, impact. I, yeah, now you've reminded me of it. Yeah, it's certainly one of the standout scenes. I haven't seen Omen for years, so I'm going to go and rewatch it, I think. But yeah, that mm. scene, there's, I mean, there's a lot of good standout set pieces in the Omen for sure. But yeah, that scene, yeah, agreed. It's a, yeah, it's terrifying. And for it's all horrific. the reasons you said, yeah. But yeah. but yeah, as you said, Paul, you know, people listening to this, feel free, hit us with your own. They're going to be personal stories, aren't they, honestly? Like, what really yeah. affects you the most? What's scariest? What do you go back to, even though you might feel like you also don't want to go back to it, which seems to be a theme of a number of these ones here? Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I would say I enjoyed that list. But like I said, some of the rewatch is pretty tough. Yeah, I completely agree. There's some scenes that I don't, yeah, especially watching the scenes in isolation without the context of the film around it, it kind of makes them worse at times. Yeah. So yeah. But anyway, that's it from us for our semi Halloween special. Um, yeah. Where can, we, where can we find us, Pete? That was the worst sign-off I've ever delivered, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was the worst sign-off I've ever done. We'll try again. <laughs> it was an impactful <laughs> ending. I think I think we've been drained by talking about such horrifying things. But yeah, uh, as always, you can get in touch with us for uh, Twitter correspondence at Strangers Cinema. We are also available uh, for questions and comments. Strangersinacinema at gmail.com is the email address there. Then there's a Facebook, there's an Instagram. Follow us on those. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Tell your friends, share it around all the support that we get is helpful um, and of course if you have suggestions for future top fives or films that we should cover please let us know anything else from you Paul? Uh, no I'm going to bed because I feel terrible so thank you for listening <laughs> you've earned yeah. it right we'll see you next week Goodbye. shut up and sit down